Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, September 28th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes shares with us details of her conversation with Michael Kovrig. Michael returned home to Canada over the weekend after being detained in China for almost three years. Next, we look at the growing number of medical professionals calling for increased restrictions in the province to battle COVID-19. We speak with Dr. Paul Boucher, president of the Alberta Medical Association, on why he believes a firebreaker lockdown is needed at this time. Could mental health be the next wave of this pandemic? We speak with a psychologist with a specialization in PTSD on the impact that we can expect post-pandemic. And finally, it's a special issue of Avenue Magazine with a real local flavor. We speak with Avenue's editor-in-chief, Shelley Arnish, about the third annual Made in Alberta issue and the local companies that made it into the pages of the magazine. This weekend, Global's Mercedes Stevenson was able to catch up with Michael Kovrig after he arrived back in Canada, both Michaels being released from Chinese prison. And on the West Block, it was a, a short but sweet little chat for sure with Michael Kovrig as most Canadians celebrating the two of them arriving back on home soil. So we're joined by Mercedes Stevenson this morning, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Hi, Mercedes. Hi, Sue. I know it was a really short chat, but it must have been a real pleasure for you to get a chance to check in with Michael Kovrig shortly after he landed. I know he, he said he was running on two hours sleep, but it must have been pretty yeah. pretty neat for you. It, it was. It was really um, an incredible moment to actually see him uh, and to hear his voice after all of this time that we've all been following uh, the ordeal that he and Michael Spavler went through so closely. Uh, and there he was, and in remarkably... Um, you know, just positive mindset. He was cracking jokes before, you know, we put the cameras up to do the interview. Uh, he was telling us the first thing he ate on his flight home uh, between Alaska and Calgary on um, a military challenger jet uh, provided by a Navy chef was mac and cheese and ribs. Uh, <laughs> that was the first meal he got to enjoy. Um, just incredible resilience from him and the pure unadulterated joy from his family. I mean, mm-hmm. it was just radiating off them. You couldn't miss it. Uh, so we kept it nice and short. We did not want to be keeping them from uh, spending their time together. They've been through so much. Um, and uh, Vina, who's his wife, um, who he separated from, but they're, they're still, as you can see, very close. Very. Um, she, she just was incredible the whole way through this in terms of campaigning to get him released and his sister who said she felt like she could quote unquote finally breathe again like she, she's been holding her breath for two years um so it was really great to have that opportunity uh to talk to him and to talk to family and uh, i mean we sat down with them on saturday afternoon so this was literally like three hours after he got off the plane in toronto Incredible. And you you talk about an ordeal that lasted over a thousand days. It's got to be, you know, a a real process for the two Michaels to transition back into Canadian society, I would think. Yeah, I mean, you've you've been living in uh, a confined space uh, alone, not having social interaction. I mean, they've not been able to, you know, pick up the phone every week and call their family. They didn't even know what was really going on on the outside. Uh, and Michael Covert talked about that, that they, they really had no idea. Um, and when I've 
spoken with others who have been held in Chinese prison, like Kevin Garrett, uh, another Canadian who was arrested and falsely charged and then eventually released. He said that when the ambassador came to see him, like, they can't tell you anything about what's happening with your case. So all you know is you're in jail. Mm. Uh, And eventually what the charges are, uh, but very, very little sense of what was going on. And one of the things that uh, Michael Kofrake said to us was he was just overwhelmed getting out and finding out like not only have people known about this but it wasn't something that was known in passing canadians really cared they were looking at this they were interested in it um and i think that was deeply touching for uh certainly for michael covery when he was talking to us because they just had no idea what was going on total isolation although i will say uh, you know to again how remarkably resilient they are i saw a tweet of michael kovrig out getting his covid-19 shot uh, uh, the pharmacist wow. who gave it to him tweeted it and said i i'm allowed to tweet this with permission like look who came in to get their shot today which i guess also answers our question but we weren't sure whether or not they'd been vaccinated and what the situation was uh, with covid-19 in the prison in china so michael kovrig out getting his shot within a couple of days of being back I saw the uh, gentleman who gave him a haircut as well was pretty proud of, of being able to say that. Do I mean, he looked, Mercedes, incredibly well. I was quite surprised. Even when they got off the plane to greet Prime Minister Justin Trudeau here in Calgary, both looked very well-dressed, well-coiffed. Were they, because tr- I think maybe, maybe just me, but I had a, a real idea of how they were treated and it would be horribly in a Chinese prison. Maybe not so much. Well, I mean, we haven't talked to them, but what they went through with our understanding was that they were essentially in isolation with the lights on 24 hours a day. Um, So they were in very, very tough conditions. Um, Michael Kovrig, I know, would would pace 7,000 cases around his cell every day. Uh, He would try to do some fitness routines inside, you know, whether it was push-ups or sit-ups or whatever else to try to move. He was trying to read. He was trying to really kind of go somewhere else mentally. Um, we don't know what Michael Spavor was doing because his family's been a little bit quieter. We do know that um, that was Michael Kovrig's family that shared that with us. That's, that's how he was trying to really stay grounded. He looked very pale to me. I mean, you could tell it was somebody who had not really been outside mm-hmm. in a very long time, uh, and he was very thin, and they were talking about that uh, after our interview because that's what we were kind of joking around about what he was going to have to eat at the end and that's when he said oh i had you know mac and cheese and um ribs and you know his sister and vina looked at him and said yeah we could still see your ribs like he's very thin right now um so these you know it's uh they, they did not look i think maybe perhaps the way people expected but so much of their journey now will be mental too right i mean you're coming out of having been in a tiny little restricted cell with no control and you're back into the world uh, and back into Canada. So you've got culture shock, you've got all of these things. Um, and that's also what we wanted to be mindful. You know, when we were doing our chat that we didn't push too far when, mm-hmm. when you're just back um, and that this was just to see how they were doing. Uh, but I think all of those things are, are going to, you know, be things people talk about going forward and how do you debrief? They're going to be debriefed by intelligence agents here in Canada who are going to want to know everything that happened. Uh, they are going to have to see medical authorities to figure out what's going on there. There's all kinds of um, often deprogramming people kind of have to go through after they've been in yeah. a very small space and, and trapped for a long time, whether it's a kidnapping by, you know, a criminal group or in this case, essentially what was a hostage taking by a nation state. Um, there can be long-term effects, although certainly it's just great to see that as far as we can see so far, they look like they're doing far better than any of us expected. Mm-hmm. Absolutely the case. Happy to have them back on Canadian soil. Would you, would you have time to stick around for two more minutes or do you, do you have another? Sure. Interview? Okay, oh, perfect. Yes. 
uh, good stuff. We'll uh, continue this conversation after traffic. Thanks more with Mercedes Stevenson, uh, the uh, host of the West Block and, of course, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief. Back with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Mercedes, uh, you spoke to Michael Covery quickly, and then you checked in with the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Mark Garneau, afterwards. It must be incredibly frustrating to ask someone questions over and over and never have them actually answer even one of them. Um, what was your the story of my life. Oh, my gosh. It, it must be so frustrating. <laughs> you know, what were your, your takeaways from that? I mean, anything on, you know, the banning of Huawei? You talked to him about that. Canadians traveling China and he wouldn't really ever say anything. Yeah, it was a, wouldn't wouldn't say they're going to ban Huawei, um, which you know a lot of people's theory was that they weren't banning Huawei before yes. because the two Michaels were in prison and therefore their lives were on the line. Okay, they're out now. Are you going to do it? Um, it? It was sort of all I was trying to get at there was like, what's the danger that remains to Canadians? That was very interesting. He told people to check the tra- travel advisory before going to China, but wouldn't actually spell out what it says. Mm-hmm. Um, he also wasn't saying, hey, go to China and do business. Sounds like a great idea, um, which I, you know, kind of read between the lines on that one and found that interesting. He wasn't saying, yes, it's safe for Canadians to go to China. Yes, we think that the danger is over. He kept kind of saying, you know, travel at your own risk. But he also wouldn't say, look, this could happen to somebody else. Um, We asked about whether or not we should be sending athletes to the Winter Olympics because they're in China. He tried to default on that and say, oh, it's the Canadian Olympic Committee. Okay, yeah, but what do you think is the Minister (laughs) of Foreign Affairs? Uh, I think, honestly, it comes down to a few things. One, they were not going to be willing to criticize China when they had gotten the two Michaels back less than 24 hours earlier. Um, And I think there was a lot of fear that, you know, there are they they did not want to be seen as sort of uh, looking the gift horse in the mouth. And a lot of folks will say, okay, but isn't that a problem? Because if China has now learned that this works, that taking people uh, hostage works, and that you'll be able to trade them like pawns, how are you going to dissuade that in the future? Um, I think that he and other leaders are simply not willing to go there. Yesterday, you saw the U.S. essentially trying to deny there was a tie between the cases, despite the fact they were put on the planes at the same time and flown home. So I suspect uh, there's a possibility that either there's a high sensitivity there or um, that part of the deal was sort of that we're not going to talk about this right away. Uh, Minister Garno did say eventually the details would come out in time, but I think the government is going to find themselves under a lot of pressure, especially on the Huawei file, because we're the only Five Eyes country who hasn't mm-hmm. restricted or barred them. Um, and that is creating friction with our allies when it comes to intelligence sharing, that they're concerned about what the Huawei decision is going to be. I think they just didn't want to go there quite that quickly. Um, you know, and I think there's very real concerns about how do you stop China from doing this again. Um, on the one hand, we didn't just simply turn Meng Wanzhou over and just show them that you know being a bully works. On the other hand, ultimately, they were able to get a deferred prosecution agreement with Meng, which has some worried um, that that means they'll be emboldened and think this is something they can do. Uh, watching their broader diplomacy and talking with a lot of China experts, I think that this is sort of the new mode that China is in. Um, they they are called wolf warrior diplomacy. It's, it's very aggressive, not militarily, but in asserting themselves in other ways. Um, and I think that a lot of the China experts will tell you, regardless of what the outcome was with this case, mm-hmm. some think it was uh, the right thing to do to get a deferred prosecution agreement and get our citizens back. Others say, no, it could embolden China. Mm-hmm. Um, they all kind of say that China, this is this is the new mode of their foreign uh, policy, and it's not likely to change anytime soon. And that's partially why it's so important that you have a coordinated approach with China with other countries like the United States, Australia, Great Britain, uh, you know, UK, where, where you're 
all presenting the same face because China is just so huge and so powerful that if they choose to go this route, it's very hard uh, to get them off another one without a lot of pressure from a lot of economies that are a lot bigger than Canada. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Moving ahead, we'll see what and how things unfold um, as a nation. But thank goodness the Michaels are back home. Thanks for your time and the update, Mercedes. Thanks for having me. Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. Yesterday, 58 uh, ICU doctors uh, penned a letter uh, to the province saying it's uh, too late, not too late, rather, to uh, change direction and get COVID back under control. They're calling for a firebreaker to aggressively control COVID-19 in order to protect our health care system and keep Albertans safe. This morning, we're joined by the president of the Alberta Medical Association, Dr. Paul Boucher, to explain the need for firebreaker measures. Good morning to you, Dr. Boucher. Good morning. Well, let's, uh, let's get the definition of firebreaker to begin with. What, what do you mean by that? Yeah, it's, you know, I guess a new term that's found its way into our lexicon. But I think, you know, really it, it means, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, locking down again to, to really get the case numbers under control. So, Doctor, what exactly is the situation? Explain to us what's happening behind the scenes. We don't see it, but wh- you're diverting medical staff. And exactly what does it look like? Well, you know, it's been a it's been a stretch for everyone for the you know last number of months, but more so, uh, you know, you know, since the case numbers have really been going up in the ICU. So, you know, they I, I'm not a spokesperson for AHS, so just so we're clear on that. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, I do work in the intensive care unit as well as being the president of the association. Um, you know, we've had people coming to help out from from lots of different other places with complementary skill sets and. You know, when we look at ICU capacity, you know, a lot of times people count spaces and beds, but, you know, that's only one part of the equation. Probably the more important part, you know, is the personnel that it takes to look after these very sick patients. And so, you know, we, as you probably see the numbers, I mean, the capacity of intensive care beds has increased dramatically to try to accommodate the number of patients that are coming in. And the main concern, you know, what people call, you know, the quote-unquote system collapse, you know, is the need to have to um, start rationing care. And um, and that is a nightmare scenario for anyone uh, that's ever looked after patients, particularly in acute care environment. So can you give us some sort of a sense on what it would look like if, if, if your consortium had its way? What would it look like differently for the average Calgarian, for example, or average Albertan? Because right now we do have capacity restrictions and we, uh, you know, for, for, for personal gatherings, we know about funerals and, and weddings and the like, and we need our uh, vaccine exemption uh, card for proof for a lot of these uh, different areas. What would change? You know, I, it, um, I, I wish I wasn't here having to have this conversation with you. Um, you know, we, um, you know, we, we've been advocating all along for, uh, you know, first off at the end of July when, when there was a move to sort of move to the endemic state, um, you know, uh, last week for stronger measures. And, you know, the, the hard thing with all the things that you mentioned that we've, that we've, uh, that the government has instituted is that there's no way to measure the impact of that. And so if you're in a situation where you can, you know, invoke, you know, the things that you've mentioned that we've done and have time to see whether it makes an effect or not, uh, that's one thing. Uh, what we're telling you now is that we're concerned that we're out of time. And the unfortunate and hardest part of this, because I know we've been through a lot as a community, um, and many, you know, people have been doing their part in, in all sorts of different ways. You know, these lockdowns work, right? They, they work. They do the job. There's lots of unintended consequences to them, and there's lots of 
you know, discomfort and pain, so to speak, in society with them, but they get the job done, right? And we know that across the world, and we know that here in Alberta. Um, and unfortunately, you know, the feeling that, you know, we got from a representative forum is that, um, you know, we're flirting with disaster and we're, we're really out of time. So, Doctor, if nothing changes, what does that disaster look like? That's your word. We'll use it. How long can hospitals and staff keep going under these conditions? You know, it's a really it's a really good question. You know, it's such a fluid situation with, uh, you know, I know Dr. Q and all of her team are working so hard to try to make as much capacity as possible. You know, you did mention the notion of having to transfer patients out of the province. You know, all these things are possible. Uh, you know, the numbers fluctuate, right, every day. Um, but we're close, you know, and, and are we four days away, five days away? I don't know that anybody can predict that because it's really, it's such a fluid situation. What I can tell you is that we're flirting with it. We're close to it. And, you know, uh, you know, a, a bad, you know, a bad couple of days of, of, uh, ICU admissions for COVID. And just remember, it's not just COVID. You know, you know, we, we were talking earlier in the segment of those poor miners that were stuck, you know, in Sudbury, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of, uh, disaster here that brings in a number of casualties. These are all, uh, all need ICU resources. So we're talking about a resource that's there for all Albertans, not just those with COVID. And so, um, you know, we've already shut down elective surgeries and cancer surgery, a lot of cardiac surgeries to make room for patients. Um, So we're punishing people already. Let's just be very clear about that. Um, But what we're worried about is having to punish people in a different way where, um, you know, we say, listen, uh, we're taking you off the ventilator. I'm very sorry um, because someone else is here that needs it that has a better prognosis or we're going to deny you care, you know. And so, you know, we're this is what everyone's worried about. You, you get 58 ICU physicians together. You, you put this letter together, Dr. Boucher, and I'm wondering, we're hearing your side of the story, what, what do you hear back? Have you heard anything or is this more of an outgoing message? Um, you know, I did speak with the minister yesterday. So just, you know, it's a, it's, there's sort of two things that are a bit conflated together. You know, the letter from the ICU physicians, um, you know, came from, from them. Uh, you know, the statement that we released actually came from a call from our representative forum. So twice a year, you know, doctors, not just intensive care doctors, but doctors that represent all specialties and geography across the province uh, come together to set direction for the organization. And, and this is the direction that they set, you know, on Saturday uh, for us. Uh, you know, we've been advocating all along, but, uh, you know, just kind of, um, you know, I guess my, I've always tried to have a very balanced approach to this, even though I've been extremely concerned with what's been happening in the last couple of weeks. Um, but, you know, the, the representative forum said, you know, enough, you know, move forward with this immediately, So, which is why the release came yesterday. Um, you know, what are we hearing back? So I did, I talked to the minister yesterday, you know, he heard our concerns. Uh, obviously, you know, there's, uh, you know, they're watching the numbers too. Um, you know, I offered our assistance, you know, in whatever way we could to help, uh, um, you know, with expertise at the table to help, uh, you know, I know they've got lots there, but we've got lots of, you know, great members and good minds in Alberta that can help as well. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what I've heard back from there. What I hear back from our members, you know, is, is a bit mixed. You know, not everybody's in agreement with this, and I understand that. Um, you know, I, like I told you when I first started, like, this is the last thing that I wanted to be uh, out advocating for, uh, really hoping that it didn't get to this. So is there something that we, we the people, we can do to help you to, to push this message, to try and, and get government to listen, and whether it's a full lockdown, but at least perhaps to be doing something more to help? Well, I think, thank you for that. You know, first and foremost, um, you know, we talk a lot about vaccines. And, um, you know, I think um, I think we're at the point now where those that haven't been vaccinated, you know, maybe just need uh, to have a conversation with their primary care provider, uh, you know, to understand, you know, the risks and benefits of them. Uh, so that's number one. 
I think to be clear, though, you know, um, vaccination isn't going to get us out of this fourth wave. And, and this is why we're calling for this. Please follow all the public health measures. And I, my advice to you is to institute some of your own. You know, if the government isn't willing to, to really restrict, you know, your contact with other people, um, I'd suggest you do it. You know, I, I, I you know, the, you know, that's what we've been doing here, you know, to try to keep my family safe and to keep me well so that I can make sure that I'm there to work. Mm-hmm. Thanks for your message and thanks for your time this morning, Dr. Boucher. Really appreciate having you having me on. That's Dr. Paul Boucher, Alberta Medical Association president. Still amidst the pandemic, uh, but looking beyond, what lasting impact will COVID leave after the pandemic? Will it be a different pandemic of mental health? To discuss, we're joined by Dr. Shauna Springer, Chief Psychologist for the Stella Centre, leading expert on PTSD and performance stress. Uh, Good morning to you, Dr. Springer. Good morning, Andy. How are you? Good. Thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, In your opinion, what will be the mental health fallout after COVID-19? There are going to be a lot of uh, long-term effects from COVID-19 for a lot of people. Not just people who have had COVID, but people who have lost loved ones and had their grief cut off or who have dealt with stress for the last two years thinking about this invisible virus and could there be a variant now of the Delta. It's just going to be um, waves of trauma, I think, that we're going to have to address in the decades to come. And doctor, do you think that there might be new ways to deal or treat some of this trauma or what's that going to look like as we move forward? Yes, I think this has also been a time when innovation has really exploded in very positive ways. And we now know that trauma is an injury that can be seen on a brain scan and it can be healed. And so times like this when there's a lot of trauma can also be times when there's a seismic shift in how we address trauma And the company I'm working with, Stella, is really at the forefront of some of that innovation. And we've been seeing seeing many people get healed from their trauma as well. Let's talk about PTSD, something you specialize in. I think generally we think about war veterans and PTSD. Mm -hmm. So can you you give us a a definition and, and how PTSD might look like in somebody after the pandemic and the effects of the past 19 months or so? Sure. Well, trauma definitely isn't just a veteran's uh, issue, to your point. It's a human universal, and we all know that now. It's not some abstract thing that uh, one group, first responders or veterans, um, really has to confront. It's something that we all struggle with in different ways. There's been layers of um, issues in Canada and in the U.S. We've had record-breaking wildfires. Uh, We've had Um, You know, the COVID has just been the backdrop of all of it, but there's been so many causes of trauma and stress. And some of it is what I call stealth anxiety, where you just sit baking in this kind of stress about, do I send my kids back to school? They're not vaccinated. Um, You know, how will I work out, you know, a new job because I've been laid off or lost my job? There are all of these stressors that have an accumulating effect and really lead us to See the world differently, um, to your question, to, to see the world as not a safe place or to not be sure if we can trust other people or navigate you know, the way we um, manage our relationships in a very different way from a kind of threat position of feeling defensive all the time rather than approaching things with, with hope and optimism. But we can heal that. When that's addressed, that can really change and people can get their lives back. 
Doctor, you know, I, I guess it's could be a good thing or a bad thing that this is, you know, trauma probably worldwide due to the pandemic. We're all kind of in this mm-hmm. together, aren't we? Uh, you know, in relation to the new digital lifestyle that we all live, is this really, you know, contributing to the trauma and the PTSD that we'll all likely have uh, some sense of coming out of the pandemic? It is. That's such an important point and question because, you know, the digital life that we live is making trauma show up in our, our living rooms um, continually. There's been a lot of traumatic news that's come uh, over the last two years. The sheer overstimulation is taxing our nervous system. And then beyond that, one of the big changes is you used to read about something in a paper, something bad that happened, and you couldn't really form a mental image. Now you can form a mental image because the digital world gives us pictures of people showing up at the front door, they, you know, are, are caught on these home cameras. They literally look like something out of a, a horror movie um, with the, the lighting on their faces, you know, stealing packages and things like that. And it makes us feel like crime is up and the world has really changed. When, in fact, in my state where I live, violent crime is actually down. So there's something about the digital medium that's not very helpful to us yeah. in terms of how we're taking in so much trauma and the form that it gets delivered to us. Dr. Springer, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. That is Dr. Shauna Springer, chief psychologist for the Stella Center and leading expert on PTSD and performance stress. The new issue of Avenue Magazine is out today. It's the Made in Alberta issue, focusing on the third annual Made in Alberta Awards. Joining us with What's Inside is Shelley Arnish, the new editor-in-chief of Avenue Magazine. Good morning to you, Shelley. Good morning. Shelley, tell us all about the Made in Alberta Awards. Uh, what's the focus? Well, the Made in Alberta Awards are, uh, you know, it's right there in the name. Um, it's the third year in a row that we've done this uh, project. And um, essentially, it's a, yeah, it's a contest. If you have a product that's made here in the province, you can enter it into these awards. Um, it's judged by experts. And then um, a list of winners is determined, a list of winners and runners-up. And then um, we publish the winners uh, in, in the October issue. But in addition to just kind of the regular um, issue of Avenue Magazine, what we did this year is we, we produced an additional special issue just about the Made in Alberta Awards program. Um, and what's great about that is it's distributed all over the province, so beyond kind of the the Calgary region, which is like the Avenue Magazine um, kind of region. It goes all over the province. Can you give us a sneak peek as to what maybe some of the winners were offering up? Sure. Well, I mean, right on the cover there um, is the award winner for it. It's the overall winner this year. So basically what they do is they judge in a variety of categories. One of the categories is a non-alcoholic drink category. So we've got an alcoholic drink category for, you know, craft brews and special liqueurs and and different types of other alcoholic beverages. But um, we also have a non-alcoholic drink uh, category. And this year, the winner in that category is this really unique product um, made in Edmonton called Beverage Bombs. Um, And these things are super neat. They look like little, little roses and you drop them into hot water and they basically create like um, specialty coffee and tea drinks. So, um, yeah, like say if, say if you're out camping or something and you, ha- you have a hankering for a, a chai latte, mm-hmm. you can just boil up some water, drop in one of these things, and there you go. Awesome. Wow, yeah, Love that. You're finding your new beverages in the pages of Avenue. Uh, <laughs> 11 different categories, including a new one for Indigenous artisans. Tell us about this. Yeah, that was something really exciting that debuted this year. Um, so this, this category is named in honor of Amy Willier, who was uh, 
Um, she she unfortunately left us a little too soon earlier this year, but um, she's a well-known um, and very respected uh, gallerist and knowledge keeper and entrepreneur here in Calgary. Um, she ran the uh, the very well-known Moonstone Creation um, Gallery, and it was also a studio where you could learn to make uh, Indigenous artisan um, work. So you could, if you always wanted to learn how to make uh, your own moccasin beading uh, project, you could go there and take take a class from Amy and, and uh, the rest of the Moonstone staff. Um, so yeah, unfortunately, like I said, she she left us a bit too earlier, but uh, early this year. But she was um, involved in the Made in Alberta project last year and kind of was on on uh set to be involved this year and so we decided to honor her we would create an award in her name and um yeah we launched that this year it's the amy willier uh award for indigenous artisans and um the first winner in that category is a metis beading artist out of spruce grove her name is uh, jocelyn lamont i believe is i'm pronouncing it correctly but um yeah she just just does some absolutely lovely uh metis beading projects and you can you can check that out uh in the issue as well as uh as on made in alberta awards.ca fantastic well thank you very much shelly appreciate it we'll uh we'll tell you obviously you can read about all the winners and find out more about the products and the made in alberta conference it's coming up october 13th and 14th so made in alberta awards.ca and of course we'll send people to avenuecalgary.com thanks for joining us Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. That's Shelly Arnish, who is the new editor-in-chief of Avenue Magazine. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcast, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcasts. And tune in to Mornings with Sue and Andy from 530 to 9 every weekday morning on 770 CHQR.